Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Would you please take up your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 14. It's quite a long reading we have this morning. We're going to take on the whole chapter we're in. A dark place of all that's been going on, haven't we, ever since David's sin with Uriah and Bathsheba back in chapter 11. Um, it's been felt a little bit like one thing after another. Chapter 13, we've had uh, Amnon, uh, who raped his sister Tamar, and then Absalom, um, Tamar's brother, killed, uh, killed Amnon, Absalom's fleet. And now we're into chapter 14. So let's listen to God's words to us. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner. Put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I'm a widow. My husband is dead and your servant had two sons and they they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them and one struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen against your servant and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the air also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God that the avenger of the blood kill no more and my son be not destroyed. He said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my Lord the king. He said, speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are all like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now that I've come to say this to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. 
And your servant thought, the word of my Lord the King will set me at rest. For my Lord the King is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my Lord the King speak. And the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? Uben answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my lord has wisdom, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this, go. Bring back the young man, Absalom. And Job fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Job said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Job arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was very heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king. But Joab would not come to him, and he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servant, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and his barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. And Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? Be better for me to be there still. Now therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. This is God's words to us. Now, 2 Samuel 14. It's, it's quite a chapter, isn't it? Uh, a whole chapter about getting Absalom back on the scene. And it's strange, isn't it? There's lots of ups and downs and twists and turns as we go along. But in the, in the midst of it all, it is a story that, that's asking us to do a bit of self-reflection Asking us to think personally what kind of people we want to be. And also corporately, what kind of church do we want to be? Because we can have great aims for, for God's church and for this world. You know, we'd love to see people saved, to see growth of God's kingdom, a wonderful unity of God's people, a, a thriving ministry. We'd love to see results. And the things we long for can be good. But 2 Samuel 14, it gets us to do a bit of a health check and make us think, well, how do we get there? What kind of lives are we going to live? What kind of ministries and leaders are we going to have even with those results in view? 
Because the, the temptation for us is to have the results as the only focus. To not ask the question at all of how. It doesn't matter how, we're just aiming for the top. And that, that's the focus, actually, of the chapter. Go for results. Because at the start of the chapter, we've got a problem that needs solving. Absalom, David's son, he's in exile because he's murdered his, his, um, his other brother, Amnon, for raping his sister Tamar, as I said. It's an absolute horrific mess. It's a, it's a mess for the family, but it's also a mess for the kingdom. To have a stable kingdom, you need clear kings, clear successors to the throne, and having Absalom separate uh, brings ambiguity to the whole situation. And then by the end of the chapter, verse 33, then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom, and he came to the king and bowed with his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed him. It's success. Absalom's back, and he's, he's seemingly reconciled to David. All good. Results. It doesn't matter how we got there. We got there. And that's our temptation in, in church and as individuals to do what, whatever brings results, whatever the means or the cost. And we can, we can see it across the church. You know, we can see it on the big scale. It's like a, a mega church investing massive amounts of cash into their, just into their social media presence, just to in, increase their popularity. And the pastor only preaches on certain kinds of sermons uh, and there's not much gospel. Or perhaps we see it on the small scale. You know, I recently heard of a, uh, of a church I know not willing to, to talk about certain cultural issues because they, they knew it'd be unpopular with their members and they, they might leave. And as we'll see, it's not just a temptation out there, but it's a temptation here for us as a church and, and us as individuals. And we've got to ask ourselves, well, what kind of people do we want to be? Because this chapter actually leaves us with a haunting question. When results are all that matter, how deep do they actually go? How lasting are they? Are they the results we were actually aiming for? Because throughout this chapter, and at the end especially, there are clues that not is all as it should be. Even that last verse, Absalom falls on his face, but it's like a servant would, like Joab had done, like the woman from Tekoa had done, not like a son. There's no weeping as father and son are you reunited after many years, or and perhaps this is just an awkward kiss of a king reinstating him. And then chapter 15 awaits. And you can see the title to it. It's got a condemning verdict on it all. Absalom's conspiracy. He's on his way to try and take over the throne. The way matters. The means matter. But you may be wondering, well, how do I know if I'm getting this wrong? Well, this chapter is going to show us three different ways of getting it wrong. Three worldly tactics, worldly schemes. And there are three ways in three people. In Joab, and then in David, and then in Absalom himself. And as we see them, it calls us to examine ourselves, as I said. What kind of people are we going to be? Are we going to be like them? Or do we trust God's way with him every, uh, by our side every step of the way? So what goes wrong? Let's have a look. Well, firstly, we get Joab's lying manipulation. Joab's lying manipulation so as we've said at the start of the chapter, Absalom, he's in exile. And it says, the king's heart went out uh, to Absalom. Now, although that sounds positive, actually, it's, it's a bit ambiguous there. Is he just thinking about him? Is he actually against him? 
Given the lengths Joab then goes to, it would suggest it's definitely not overly positive, but whatever quiet is going on with David, Joab it, then it hatches this extraordinary plan. This is politics at its most devious, you know, a chief advisor of the king using some interesting tactics. Uh, I'm sure much similar as perhaps happened in, in Holyrood and Westminster. But he, he sends for the, this wise woman and he gets her to do some acting. She's to pretend she's been mourning for her son to head to David to ask for help. And then we get one of the longest conversations in the book. And, and she tells him this story. I don't know if you picked up on it. She's a widow. She's got two sons. One strikes the other and he dies. The family, they're in uproar and want him punished for his crime. Now their motivation of the family is a bit suspect. They want to get the heir, perhaps so they can prosper from the whole affair. But that would leave the woman alone and destitute as a widow. And it's a story. It's a story to pull up the heartstrings. A story to persuade David to act. Now David seems to, to come down on her side, but, but doesn't say enough for Joab's plan then to kick in. Verse 8, it's a bit ambiguous. Go to your house, I'll give orders concerning you. you know, it's a classic politician's answer. He's not really committing. And so the woman pushes a bit harder. And this time he says, verse 10, Okay, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. But again, she needs more. So she pushes again and finally he says, verse 11, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. There it is, David's complete alignment with the son, his word of protection for the son who's done wrong. And now the woman uh, on Job's behalf moves in for the kill. It's like a, a cunning journalist. You know, her questions have got her to the point of striking. And verse 13, in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. There's the issue. If he sided with her son, who's killed his brother, why has he not sided with Absalom, who's killed his brother? Point made. And then here we see her cunning. She quickly retreats. She moves back to her own ploy and throws in some wonderful compliments just to, to cover her back. Verse 17, for my Lord the King is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Now David's no idiot, is he? And he sees what's gone on. He realizes Joab's hand in it all and he, he summons Joab and then gives in. Verse 21, behold now, I grant this. Go back to the young man, Absalom. And Joab's scheme, his, his tactics, they, they've got the result he wanted. And it's a puzzling little incident, isn't it? A puzzling story, especially because it's framed with this woman being called wise, and it, it all sounds very wise. And it, I think what's also interesting, it has a familiar feel to it. It feels a lot like what Nathan did when David had sinned with Bathsheba and Uriah. If you remember, Nathan went to the king, he went to the king with a story. He then showed how the story related to David, and David was convicted. Well, is that what's going on here? Just another of those kind of things? Well, well, yes, it might feel the same, but actually it's quite different. Because this is lying manipulation, not the word of God from a prophet of God. Right from the start we see that. If we think back to Nathan's story, it was clearly told as a story. He said, uh, uh, back in uh, chapter 12, there were two men in a certain city. That's how he starts this story. It's clearly vague because it's made up, and that's okay. It's, it, it's portrayed as a story. But here, Joab just straight lies. She's to pretend to be mourning. The whole story is portrayed as real. And then, 
Rather than being a clear link between the story and David's situation, the woman's story manipulates the issues to make it seem not quite as it really is. It's, it's clever, it's cunning. The way she tells about her son's fighting, you're not quite sure if it's murder or manslaughter or not. They quarreled and one struck the other and killed him. Did he mean to? We don't know. But that's just not a fair comparison. Absalom's murder of Amnon, it was premeditated. It was years in the planning. And she makes out those wanting to have justice on the living son have bad motives. They want to do it for greed. But, but with David again, it's just not the same. David is meant to execute justice. It's not for his gain that Absalom's in exile. It's a story that's pushing for change in, in plan, but it's all by lying manipulation. There's no attempt really to get to David's heart. It's just there to trick him, trick him into comparing one decision with another and changing his view. It goes for his feelings, not his conscience. It's lying manipulation. And we, things we know this is so tempting when we want someone to do something for us. We can, you know, we can just change the facts a little bit to make a story really hit home. You know, we, we just, we're just exaggerating a little bit. We, we feel we've got a shock just rather than just lay out the truth. And we, we justify it to ourselves because it's getting the right results. And it can be so subtle, we often don't even notice until we've done it. Just the other day, I was wanting one of my children not to misbehave. And I said something that, that wasn't quite true about how I'd feel if he did. It was just a little lie to manipulate the situation to my benefit. And it left us both with a bad taste. In the end, it was me who had to apologize, not him. Joab's using lies here, and he's aiming at change, changed action, not at a changed heart. But God's people and God's leaders, we're to be people of, of truth. Of truth, because God is truth. And so we need the spirit of truth involved. He's the one who convicts of truth and righteousness. He's the one who's going to bring deep change. Don't we see this so clearly in the ministry of, of Jesus? When he told stories, it was clear he was telling stories. His parables, no lying or manipulation. And his, his words were always aimed deeper, weren't they? Aimed at our hearts. Aimed at bringing us towards God, not just to do what he wanted. But when we only care about results, we begin to look like Joab. Joab with his lying manipulation, rather than looking like Jesus. But then we get to David. David, and here with David, we see David's compromising capitulation. His compromising capitulation. And when I said this heading to someone recently, they, um, they didn't know what the word capitulation was, so it's clearly not a very good heading. But it means to give in, uh, to give in. But it's his compromising capitulation. Now, David, uh, King David, this is King David, and here he is. Now, the one before whom the woman falls with her face to the ground. And Joab falls before him similarly. And Absalom bows with his face to the ground as the chapter concludes. No one, no one is in doubt who the king is here. Are they? Because in the midst of it all, he's really not sure what he's up to. There's even an extraordinary moment when in verse 18, the woman gives David permission to speak. Twice, he just seems to give in. He just seems to go along with what Joab wants. First, after the woman's speech, he calls for Absalom to come back. And then at the end of the story, once Joab has come, he finally lets 
Absalom come. You can, you can imagine the headlines. Another U-turn for the king. Soon he's going around in circles. And as one commentator put it, he reacts, not rules. And even when he does appear decisive, he then compromises. He can't quite do everything that he says he would. So Absalom has killed his brother. So the two options are either justice, hold him guilty, make him face the punishment for it, or have mercy and bring reconciliation. Absalom says as much as he, uh, at the end of the passage. But David, he does neither. Verse 23, so Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. He's probably thinking, he's going to go into the king's presence, all will be well. And then the king says, let him dwell apart in his own house. He's not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. It's, it's a compromising capitulation. He's given in and then he's just kind of fudged it along the way. There's neither justice nor forgiveness. He's got his son home, but he doesn't want to see him. And on the surface, it might have dealt with some of Joab's worries. Joab kind of leaves it all be. Perhaps sends a signal to Absalom that things are on the right track. It sends a signal to the country that the king has an heir and all's going to be well. But David, just like Joab, he's, he's avoided the real issues. Rather than tackling them, he hopes compromise is just going to sort it out. He's left it for another day. Today, he would have probably set up another review, another committee to investigate what's best. We're doing all that we can at the present moment, he would say. But to be honest, his, his compromise seems to generate a deep bitterness in Absalom. For two full years, says he's excluded from his father. He'd rather be in exile. He even gets to the point of setting himself up as king, as we'll see next week. This halfway house of David's, it doesn't solve any issues. In the long run, it just makes things worse. Now, we, we live in a world of sin of diff and difficulties, don't we? And, and God's word calls us not for compromise and not for capitulation, but for, for strength of character to face the issues, for courage coupled with wisdom, for truth bound up with love. And that firstly involves engaging with what's gone wrong, doesn't it? David just caved in. He didn't seek clarity. He didn't engage with what had really happened between Absalom and Amnon. Nor did he fully engage with the idea of forgiveness. What does that really look like for him? How will reconciliation really happen between him and his son? The temptation to keep things at arm's length is so real, isn't it? We know and something's going to be hard. We know it might bring hurt and difficulty, so we just leave it for another day. But God's way, it requires engagement with what's wrong. And it, it means moving towards each other in love, not the other way. I remember David Gibson once giving the quote, church life is built on a thousand awkward conversations. And it's not just about considering the issues, it's about talking to each other. It's about moving towards each other. King, King David holds Absalom at arm's length and Absalom has kind of no clues why. God's people, instead we move towards each other. We're people who in love are willing to talk about sin and suffering. That's why it's so important. Um, David preached on Amnon and Tamar the other week. We've got to be okay with really hard topics and talking about them in love and honesty. So perhaps as we go towards another Christian, or perhaps where there's hurt, we ask questions kindly. 
we're willing to go deeper. Perhaps we're the ones who are first to say sorry or first to open up. Again, our, our Lord Jesus was a man who did this perfectly, didn't he? He spoke plainly to the religious leaders who had gone so array. He spoke gently to sinners and tax collectors and yet called them to a new life with him. He engaged with the issues, moved towards people rather than walking with David in compromising capitulation. And then finally we get David's son, Absalom. He reappears, the man who had suffered. He'd seen his sister horrifically treated and his half-brother let off the hook. But he's also a man who's acted violently without justice. And here we see more of that kind of action. Here we have Absalom's ungodly aggravation, his ungodly aggravation. Now, he steps into the frame, and the writer, I don't know if you noticed, gave us an extraordinary introduction to him. Verses 25 to 27, they're not needed for the story. It could happily skip straight to verse 28, but they give us this wonderful window into this man. Here was a man who was praised for his good looks, a popular man. A man who, who, ha, who was known for his luscious locks. He even cut it off and weighed it. You know, he's a man of vanity. A man with, also with an attractive family. And, and in all this, there's a familiar ring to it. It all sounds a little bit like Saul. King Saul. The popular king. The man who stood out for his looks, head and shoulders above the rest. But then we see that's not just a hint. Because like Saul, Absalom's got some real problems. He's a man lacking character. We've already seen him murder his own brother. And now he sits at home. He's humiliated that he's never been called to his father. He's clearly angered, clearly frustrated by what's gone on. And he even wishes he was back in exile. So, and he's so used to getting his own way that when Joab doesn't answer, perhaps Joab's keeping his head down since things haven't quite gone as planned, but then Absalom just takes a violent approach. He just goes for force ungodly aggravation. um, Verse 30, he then, he he said to his servant, see, Job's field is next to mine and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire. It's crackers, isn't it? It's straight vandalism. It's It's arson. It's a vicious attack just to get someone's attention. You know, it's, it's an ancient equivalent of a, of a well-timed personal attack leaked in the press, isn't it? Anonymous, but everyone knows who it came from and it gets the right people's attention straight away. Or it's a bit like your neighbor, you know, banging really loudly on the inside wall again and again and again. You get the point. And for, for Absalom, it's ungodly and it's aggressive. Now, it works. He gets Job's attention and gets an audience with the king. But as we've seen, it's not the reconciliation that should have happened. He's bowing his face to the ground like the woman and Job did. There's no tears of joy in being reunited, just a kiss from his king. And it all ends up just being one more step for Absalom to then aim to secure his own gain. Here we see a leader. He's popular. He's good-looking. He's confident. He looks just the right man to take over from his father. His face would be at all the right parties, on all the right magazines. He'd say the right things to the right people. And yet underneath, what was vital was missing. Character. Godly character. There's no humility. There's no remorse. There's no gentleness. In our current age of politics, (laughs) this kind of leader is no surprise to us, is it? We've had our fair share of popular yet dubious leaders framed for their policy, famed for their policies and their debauchery. We're not surprised anymore to find one of them in court. 
that longing for results, for fame, for popularity, for being part of the next best thing. It's so strong, isn't it? So strong that we're even okay with a forceful leader because he's going to get things done. So strong that we're willing to push others out the way so that we get to where we want to be. As one church leader infamously put it about his own church, there's a, there's a pile of dead bodies behind our church's bus. By God's grace, there'll be a mountain by the time we're done. Either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. That's the type of leader we can go for because we forget what really matters. Godly character. What matters to you about your leaders? Is it success? They're bringing in more people. They have a high-profile platform. Their books are on the bestsellers list. Or is it character? Now, those things aren't mutually exclusive. Of course, you can have both. But which matters most to us? Do we want to have and be people of character? People with gentleness. People who love hospitality and are faithful to the vows they've made. People who are slow to speak, quick to listen. We know what's better. And that's why deep down we're Jesus people, isn't it? Because we know he was a man of character. He was a man of compassion. He was a man, uh, a gentle, lowly of heart. A man who loved the weak, who stood up for the strong. A man who spoke truth, even when it cost him. Perfection. Perfection in all its beauty, wasn't he? Not like Absalom's ungodly aggravation. It's quite a list, isn't it? So quite a list of worldly tactics and schemes. Joab's lying manipulation. David's compromising capitulation. Absalom's ungodly aggravation. And it shows us something vital. The end never justifies the means. What we think will be the results never justify an ungodly way of getting there. And one reason for that is because the result will never be as it should have been. Picking the easy route, the surface route, the one that misses the mark, will never bring the transformative results we hoped for. Something might look similar, but actually only be skin deep. God's route, well, it's through his son. The better son promised to David back in 2 Samuel 7. The son who took the difficult route of truth, compassion, even death for his people. And it's through him that God is building his kingdom. Not through our plans and schemes and accomplishments. It's in and through Jesus. That was the promise to David. God's going to build the house, the kingdom. And so it's only with Jesus will God's kingdom grow properly and really. Only with him will we see the vine grow and bear fruit. It's his word and spirit. That's his means. That's his way of doing things. And as he is at work... So we might start to look more like him. We start to walk in godly living and speaking truth and love. As we, so as we rely on his power, his grace, that's when the good things begin to happen. Now the results, they might not be instant. They probably won't be glamorous. But in Christ's power, they will be real and lasting. So rather than imitating those worldly schemes, let's stick with the one who does things right. Let's stick with Jesus. Let's walk with him. Because as the book of Hebrews puts it, for it was indeed fitting 
that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Amen.